Isaiah chapter 43, we begin with verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 7. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I love this section in Isaiah. If you are familiar with the contents of the book, then you probably know that uh, analysts of the book divided into two sections. The first section comprised of the first 39 chapters of the book, where the theme very often is on the theme of judgment. There is a sternness to many of those passages that reveal God to be the God of Israel, God of the nations, and there is a theme of judgment that runs throughout. But then you come to another section, which begins in chapter 40, and you see at once uh, a change in tone, so to speak, when you read the words beginning in chapter 40 in verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. And that marks the next 27 chapters of the book, uh, which is um, uh, a, a section of comfort. Now, I want to call your attention this morning in chapter 43 to these words in verse 1 that are repeated again in verse 5, just two words, they read like this, fear not, fear not. Let's look at the verses. But now, verse 1, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. And in verse 5, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. So you see an emphasis that is placed on that phrase, fear not. Now among the many dreadful things that the fall of man brought into the world, 
we would have to include that that would also take in this feeling of fear. Fear can be defined as a feeling of alarm or disquiet caused by the expectation of danger or pain or disaster or the like. And before the fall of man, there was no such thing as a feeling of alarm or an expectation of danger. There was no such thing as pain or disaster. All of those things came into the world as a result of the fall of man. I'm reminded of that scene in the Garden of Eden that shows us the very first manifestation of the kind of fear that I've now defined for you. Adam and Eve had hidden themselves because of their sin. And when God called to Adam, Adam responded by saying, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. Oh, what a shift in circumstances were upon Adam now. I am afraid. Before they sinned, he would not have occasion to say that. This was the sure indicator then that Adam had fallen. He was afraid. There was no such thing, as I said, as being afraid before the sin of disobedience became a part of Adam's experience. I think it would be true to say that one of the things that contributes in large part to being afraid is a sense of guilt. A man's guilt, you see, gives him good reason to be afraid before a holy God. And so as men grew and populated the earth and sin began to manifest itself in many ways, the world would eventually become a fearful place to live in. I'm inclined to think that in the days that preceded the flood, when God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5, the times were probably so fearful that you would have been afraid to leave your house at night. We know in our day, don't we? that there are places in the city that you just wouldn't want to venture into, especially by yourself at nighttime. There were undoubtedly many places like that in the days that preceded the flood. Now, fear, in the sense I've been describing it, is one of the things that salvation applies to. We are saved from that kind of fear. So we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. One of the reasons we're free from fear is because we're free from guilt on account of Christ's atoning death. The fact that we're given such a spirit doesn't mean, however, that we're simply numb toward all the things that we see around us that would ordinarily give rise to fear. Oh, quite the contrary. The fact that in salvation we gain a sound mind means that we have the sense to dread those things that we know are offensive to God. We know well the words of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We know that sin invites judgment upon a nation. 
And if the Old Testament teaches us anything, it teaches us that when the church or when the nation of Israel falls into sin and wickedness, then even that nation is supposed to represent the people of God that are supposed to represent those people. They invite judgment upon themselves for their wickedness and their hypocrisy. What I want you to see this morning, however, is that the people of God are not supposed to be dominated by fear. Twice in the verses we've read, we find the exhortation coming from Jehovah himself to fear not. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name. Verse 1. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. Verse 5. And we find this same exhortation in the next chapter. Chapter 44 and verse 2. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. We also find the exhortation repeated twice in an earlier chapter. In chapter 41, verses 13 and 14. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now, it makes for an interesting study to note how many of the great men of the Bible, the great men of God in the Bible, had this exhortation given to them. I'm reminded of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all of whom received such an exhortation to fear not. I'm reminded of Joshua and of Daniel. I'm reminded of Moses, who was instructed to give such an exhortation to the children of Israel repeatedly. And so we have it on good authority that such a word comes to the people of God today. You could say, based on the many times this exhortation is repeated, that God calls upon his people not to fear, and the fact that such an exhortation is a common one would certainly indicate that the people of God are prone to fear. There are many things that can cause us to fear, and so we need to hear conveyed to our souls by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, this word that we're not to fear. And before we're through, I hope to demonstrate to you that the time we spend around the Lord's table today serves to reinforce the arguments as to why this exhortation to fear not can and should be heeded. Fear not, then, is our word and my theme for this morning. And what I want to do in the moments that remain is consider for a moment the things that lead us to fear, and then the arguments presented by the text as to why we're not to fear. Well, let's look first of all at the things that contribute to fear. Our text sets before us a number of contributing factors to fear. 
the first thing may not quite be as obvious as the others. Look at the way the Lord addresses his people in verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. You see the two names in that verse that are designated as the people of God? There's the name Jacob and there's the name Israel. You could say that Jacob was the old name and that it certainly aligned itself with Jacob's old nature. Esau complained in Genesis 27 and verse 36 to his father Isaac, where we read, and he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. So the name Jacob refers to a supplanter, to someone who was cunning and shrewd, and in Jacob's case was a deceiver and arguably a thief. The name Israel, by way of contrast, refers to a prince with God. It was the blessing of this new name that was given to Jacob when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord and prevailed. This name was given to him because he gained power with God and with men. There are some that hold the notion that Jacob's real conversion took place during that wrestling match with the angel of the Lord at Peniel. The contrast then between the two names, Jacob and Israel, couldn't be greater. And within these two names, we can certainly draw an analogy of what Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 5 and verse 17, where he says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Oh, there's a Jacob in all of us that corresponds to the flesh. And there's an Israel in all of us that co corresponds to the Spirit. It's when Jacob comes to the forefront of our lives that we become vulnerable to fear. When our carnal nature holds sway over us, then we're governed by the things that are seen and our forward march, so to speak, in our service to Christ can become paralyzed. We find a vivid illustration of this kind of thing in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 13 and 14, we have the account of Moses sending a dozen spies into the promised land, they search the land for 40 days and then bring back a report to Moses and the rest of the Jews. Ten of the 12 spies were governed by what they beheld with the carnal eye. You could say there were 10 Jacobs among them. And so in Numbers chapter 13, verses 27 and 28, we read, And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great, and moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. 
and the conclusion that the majority, indeed the supermajority of spies reached, is given to us in verse 31. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Joshua and Caleb's report was based on their faith in God. You could say there were ten Jacobs and two Israels, so to speak, among the spies. Caleb's conclusion was that they were well able to overcome any obstacle. Joshua makes an interesting statement in chapter 14 and verse 8 in Numbers. This statement amounts to the dividing line between faith and sight. Joshua says in that verse, If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. What was the key in Joshua's mind to the successful conquest of the land? If the Lord delight in us. The whole matter came down to being governed by what they saw with the carnal eye or what they saw spiritually speaking. It took faith, you see, to believe that God delighted in them. Sadly, in that instance, fear prevailed over faith. And as a result, the Israelites were sentenced to 40 years in the wilderness because fear went out over faith. The same battle must be fought today by the people of God. Will you be governed by faith or by sight? If you're governed by sight, then there will be much that you'll see that can make you afraid. Mountains of wickedness are everywhere in our land, and it seems that we face foes and forces that are insurmountable. Not hard to see them, and the people that find themselves governed by uh, Fox News more than the Word of God, they in particular are, are probably fall into the category of uh, the Jacobs rather than the Israelites. What's more, if you're governed by sight, then you'll be more aware of the Jacob within you than you'll be of Israel. It will be easy for you to reason that God couldn't possibly delight in you. You failed him too often. You sin against him time and again. Why would God delight in you or in me? Well, thank God this morning that our time around the Lord's table represents a call back to faith. We see the elements, but by faith we see beyond them and are reminded by them that God does in fact delight in his people, which means he delights in us. He delights in you. So the old name Jacob, or the old man, our carnal nature, contributes to our fear. So long as Jacob prevails, we'll be dominated by fear, which according to our text is contrary to the will of God, for God himself commands us not to fear. Would you notice next from verse 2, that passing through the waters contributes to our fear. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. 
Oh, the most prominent example I can think of of a man passing through the waters would be the prophet Jonah. Here was a man thrown into the waters and then swallowed by a great fish. I wonder how long it took him to figure out that he was in the belly of that great fish. It wasn't like he could reach up and turn on the chain from a light bulb and say, oh, it's the belly of a great fish. No, it was total darkness would have been. He would have been surrounded by complete darkness, and the only thing he would have been able to sense was that this great fish was going down deeper and deeper into the sea until he reached what Jonah describes as the bottoms of the mountains. I imagine he would have experienced the same kind of sensation, I suppose, that you feel when you're in an elevator. You're going from some high floor down to the ground floor, uh, and you can tell that you're descending. Well, that would have been about the only thing that Jonah could have sensed. I am cast out of thy sight, Jonah says in chapter 2 and verse 4. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. Now, spiritually speaking, Every child of God goes through that kind of an experience one way or another. Notice from the words of our text in Isaiah 43 that the Lord says in verse 2, when thou passest through the waters. It does not say if by chance you happen to pass through the waters, but when thou passest through the waters. And this indicates to us, does it not, that passing through the waters becomes inevitable. You will pass through them. It's a given. When the Lord Jesus told his disciples to get into the boat to cross over to the other side, he was saying to them, in effect, that they would be going through the waters. They would encounter the storms. And when you think about it, can you think in your minds of any great character in the Bible that was exempt from passing through the waters? Can you think of any great character in church history that was exempt from passing through the waters, spiritually speaking? Now, the elements of the Lord's table, the bread and the cup, they serve to remind us that Christ himself passed through the waters. The billows of God's wrath came over him. This is why his followers are called on to pass through the waters, because Christ would have us tread in some measure the same path that he has taken. Part of being conformed to the image of Christ, you see, according to Paul, is being conformed to the image of his death which means that we will suffer because he suffered and we're being conformed to him. The same truth is emphasized in our text by a changing of the image from the waters to the fire. Notice again from verse 2, When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And here again we see the same kind of inevitability. When thou walkest through the fires. 
It's because of this inevitability that Peter would write in his first epistle, chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. All of which teaches us that our lives in this world are to be lived in times of trial. Trials are frightening. They're frightening to contemplate. And yet quite often it is the contemplation of them that proves to be the most frightful aspect of them. Whenever I think of those three Hebrew children being thrown into the fiery furnace, I'm struck by the thought that the most frightful aspect of their ordeal was everything that led up to it, But when they actually discovered themselves to be in the fiery furnace, all of a sudden the element of fear was gone and they enjoyed close fellowship with Christ himself. These are the elements then that contribute to fear. The old nature with all its defilement and guilt, the stormy waters, the rising rivers, and the fire. And yet in spite of all of these factors that contribute to our fears, the word of the Lord, nevertheless, is that we fear not. Well, let's consider then secondly and finally the arguments for overcoming fear. The arguments for overcoming fear. And just as I resorted to the names of Jacob and Israel as a factor contributing to our fear, so do I now resort to these names as an argument for overcoming fear. You have received a new nature. As a child of God and a follower of Christ, you have been born from above. I'm glad that the Lord uses both names in verse 1. It shows us that the Lord knows all about us. He knows us as Jacob's, and he also knows us as Israel. He knows you in all that you really are, and he knows you by virtue of your union to his Son, and he sees you as joined to his Son. This is why the gospel calls you to count yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, Romans 6, 11. We count ourselves as alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're not called upon to pretend that we're something we're not. I think there are Christians that misapply that verse that way. They say to themselves that even though they feel to be so alive to sin and dead to God, they're going to pretend that they're dead to sin and alive to God. Well, let me tell you this morning, you're not called on to pretend anything. You're called upon, rather, to view yourselves as joined to Christ. And it is by virtue of your union to him that God views you as dead to sin and alive to him. It is by virtue of this union that you're viewed as a prince with God. It is by virtue of this union that you can have power with God and with men. 
The elements of the Lord's table call us to reckon upon this union. And the fact that you've gained a new nature through regeneration means that you believe in this union and you find the desire in your heart to worship and serve and remember Christ. Would you notice from verse 3, the objective argument and then the subjective argument for overcoming fear. Listen to verse 3 again. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he who formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. The specific and objective argument for overcoming fear is found in the truth that the Lord has redeemed you. This means that the Lord has purchased you. You belong to him. We're called upon this morning to remember that in particular. Not only that you're redeemed, but you're to remember the price by which you were redeemed. You were redeemed by his blood. He paid the price for you in his very life blood. And the ramification of this redemption is given to us at the end of verse 1. It is because he has redeemed you that he can go on to say, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Oh, there's a hymn in our hymn book. Maybe we should have sung it this morning. Dear Savior, thou art mine. We celebrate in that hymn the glorious truth that Christ belongs to us, and yet the last stanza of the hymn also reckons on the truth that we are his. So let me sing thy praise, so let me call thee mine. I cannot doubt thy word, I know that I am thine. The cup which points us to the blood brings to us, as it were, his pledge that we belong to him. And when we partake of this cup in remembrance of him, we are pledging by faith that we believe we belong to him. And we pledge that he is ours also. Partaking of the cup answers to the pledge that we are his by saying back to him that he also is ours. I am his and he is mine. That's what you're saying when you partake of the cup and the bread. And if you can't say that, don't partake of the elements. You'd only be abusing them. So we have the argument of redemption behind the exhortation not to fear. You belong to God. He paid the price of the blood of his son to secure you. He will therefore never lose you. You belong to him. Notice what we read in verse 4. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. We know even as mere mortals that we are very protective of things that are precious to us. We keep such things securely locked away. How much more does God look after and protect the things he has paid very dearly for? So that's the objective argument to overcoming fear. You have been redeemed, and you, therefore, belong to God and to Christ. You've been redeemed and are, therefore, precious to God. 
There's also a subjective argument in our text. I have called thee by thy name. I love the shorter catechism definition for effectual calling. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So the test to this call is pretty simple. Have you been convinced of your sin and misery? Seems rather odd, doesn't it, that sinners need to be convinced of this? But in fact, they do. I, I remember years ago as a student, when I had opportunity to go to the city of Spartanburg and uh, preach in a courthouse to the people that were in the city jail. Most of them were just uh, weekenders that were probably in jail for their own protection. I remember thinking to myself, boy, talk about a situation that ought to be ripe for leading people to Christ. You know, you, you, you found... Uh, the dregs of society. You found the down and out, so to speak. And yet, as I look back on it now, I'm absolutely amazed that I don't know if I've ever had a more self-righteous group to preach to in all my days. They were all righteous. None of them was there because they were guilty of anything. It was someone else's fault, or they had caught bad breaks. They were righteous, so they thought... Oh, it takes grace to acknowledge your sin. It takes grace to be able to admit, Oh, I am a hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner. The unsaved men do their best to deny their guilt and their condemnation. The soul that's been wrought upon by the Holy Spirit, however, ceases from such denials and recognizes his situation as it really is. And then he's led in the course of events to embrace Jesus Christ. Have you embraced him? The communion table gives us occasion to embrace him anew this morning. Is it your desire to embrace him anew this morning? Are you persuaded of your need of him and his willingness to receive you? There follows another subjective argument by which we overcome fear. In the next verse, would you notice in verse 2 that the Lord says that when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. The Lord, you see, never left his disciples to cross the stormy sea alone. He was either with them in the boat, or he was viewing them while they were in the boat, or he would cross the stormy sea in order to be with them. So today we have the promise of his presence. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world, he says at the end of Matthew's gospel. We may not always enjoy the sense of his presence. Job mistakenly thought that God was far from him, but in fact, as you read the book, you come to realize God was in fact very near. And not only was God near at hand, but God was directing every part of Job's trial. 
And so does he do the same toward you and toward me. And this is why we can heed the exhortation to fear not. Nothing will overtake you by way of trial or temptation that isn't seen or noticed or directed by God himself. The rivers may rise, but they won't rise so high as to swallow you up. Our Savior is also our Creator, and He is, therefore, the Sustainer of the universe. This is why He can say that when we pass through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee, and when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Now this is not an empty promise that comes to someone who merely wishes us well. This is the word of the Lord, thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Do you begin to see, then, the arguments for heeding the exhortation not to fear? There are undoubtedly circumstances in life that can bring fear to your soul. It's occurred to me in the course of this study that faith, in a sense, requires courage. It takes courage to walk by faith rather than by sight. And it takes great assurance in order to gain that courage. Let the word of the Lord, therefore, and the elements of the Lord's table minister that assurance to your souls. He has redeemed you and he has called you. You belong to him. He sees you as precious and honorable and he will never let you go. Cleave to him this morning with the assurance that the waters won't swallow you up and the fire will not touch you. It is with all these things in view that the Lord himself says to you, fear not. Let's close then in prayer, shall we? Before we partake of the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we cannot deny that very often it's very easy to walk by sight rather than by faith. When we walk by faith, we have to see the unseen things. When we walk by sight, we treat the unseen things as if there's no reality to them. O Lord, we pray this morning that as we partake of these elements, May it please thee to strengthen our faith. May it please thee to minister assurance to our souls that we do indeed belong to thee. May we be encouraged to think, O Lord, that thou dost even delight in us. We know, O Lord, that it's not hard to build a case against ourselves as to why God would not delight in us. We believe it nevertheless not because of who we are or anything that we've done or hope to do. We believe, Lord, that thou dost delight in us because thou dost delight in thy Son, and we are joined to him by thy grace. So, Lord, bless us now as we partake of these elements in the remembrance of Christ, and may we indeed Come away from thy table with assurance this morning that thou art with us, that thou art for us, that thou will always be with us, that nothing 
will overtake us or swallow us up, that everything that comes our way is directed by the God who loves us and who has redeemed us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.